0: Welcome back to our show. I'm graduate assistant Jacob Michael, and here with me are our hosts, Dr. Russ McCullough and Dr. Justin Clark, as well as our guest, Hugh Welchel. All right. So yeah, we've got a special guest today, Hugh Welchel, and I say special because uh, he really influenced me on uh, my faith and economics journey, so to speak, um, when I started here at Ottawa University in 2011. Um, he is the Executive Director for the Institute for Faith Work and Economics. Uh, they have an awesome uh, website and a blog post uh, that goes out all over the all over the world and uh, talking about issues related to capitalism, free markets, and biblical principles and So Hugh has written a book, "How Then Should We Work?" And that is the book that was influential for me that I used in some book clubs here at Ottawa University early on. And we also have done podcasts, the very early podcast, if you go back to the first few episodes, uh, we based it on Hugh's book. And this is uh, an opportunity to hear it straight from himself on the things that they've been doing at the Institute. Hugh has a uh, master's degree uh, in uh, biblical theology. I can't remember if that's exactly the name. So and in a very impressive business background, and I think he felt like there was a hole there, a little bit of a disconnect, and that's part of why he got going with the Institute. So, Hugh, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. All right. Well, and I thought it would be a good place to start off um, the show uh, with some of these principles from, from the book, and I I think they are in a sense, uh, a call to work. Um, We've had Oz Guinness at our uh, campus a number of years ago, and he is also a part, Oz Guinness is a part of your new book that came out set free that we can talk about later. So I thought it'd be nice during this first half to kind of lay a foundation down. Um, I'm also going to be talking with some of the folks at the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics on a future podcast coming up in the spring at a conference and the title of our podcast, the title of our talk is Countering Christian Socialists, Biblical Arguments wow. for Freedom. So that is uh, the topic that Ann Bradley and, and Paul Cleveland of the Institute uh, agreed that it sounded like a fun talk. So that, <laughs> just to give you an idea, I thought it'd be fun to kind of set the stage of our discussion here today with you. So, um, yeah, maybe if you could get into some of the, that early work that you did.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I was a business guy for 30 years. And probably in the middle of my business career, I was a very committed Christian. I really began to struggle with the idea, why didn't God care about what I did from Monday to Friday? I mean, I was very involved in my church. I taught uh, taught at Sunday school. I sat on two or three nonprofit boards. But if you ask me, you know, what do you do that's important to God during the week? I really didn't have an answer to that. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, there's something wrong here. Because my problem back then was I was kind of stuck in this secular-spiritual divide. I thought some things in my life were spiritual. It's the stuff I did at church. And then I thought there's another large chunk of things I did over here in my regular work world that were um, secular. Not that these secular things were bad. It was just stuff that God didn't really care about. And this is, you know, I tell people back in the last century, it's quite some time ago. And there wasn't really a big faith and work movement. There weren't all the books that are out now about faith in work and work how, and how you think through integrating your faith in your work. And so I really struggled with that for a number of years. And I actually started taking classes at Seminary to try to find a solution. And, and they really didn't help me too much because, <laughs> once again, they had not thought through any of this. So, over about a 10 year period, I really kind of began to think through four or five specific issues around faith and work. And one of the probably most important was this idea of a kind of a framework to see all of redemptive history and how kind of my story fit into what I call his story or God's story. And that probably for me was a kind of aha moment when I began to understand how to see that. And we came up with a model, actually, I have kind of borrowed it from someone else, um, and we call it the four-chapter gospel. And it's a way of looking at redemptive history in in four simple chapters. Uh, The first chapter is creation. Second is the fall. The third is redemption, and the last is restoration. You see, creation shows the way things were. The fall explains the way things are. Redemption shows the way things could be, and restoration shows the way things are going to be. And for me, that was just uh, eye-opening to see kind of how that's all laid out, because it helped me understand that now I live in the third chapter of this fourth-chapter gospel, and, and it helped me kind of begin to think through how does my story fit into God's story or to his story. And uh, that was revolutionary to me. And the one thing, and it was, and it was for me,
0: it was for me as well. That's what yeah, really yeah. resonated with me. Yes. Um,
1: so, so that was, like I said, that was a big turning point. Uh, one of the five major things I talk about in the book that I had to really get my head around, and it explained a lot about the, the misunderstanding I had about this secular spiritual divide, um, because if you look at historically. Uh, the gospel has been taught in these four chapters. But well, in the last hundred years or so, we've truncated this four-chapter gospel down to two chapters. So all we talk about in church is the fall and, and redemption. And so what happens is it kind of turns the gospel to more of an inwardly focused thing. It's really kind of about all about us, all about our salvation, all about how Jesus died just to save me. And as one uh, scholar says, we've kind of turned the gospel into the gospel of sin management. And see, the big problem is when you take off that first chapter, the story of creation, you don't know what we were created to do. You'll you, you lose sight of what we were put here on this earth to do. And when you lose the last chapter, you really lose sight of where we're going to end up, that we're going to be in a physical world, a new heaven and a new earth. That'll be better than it was at creation. How that can be, I don't know, but we know it will be.
0: Right. And if and it tells you if it just forever. to give you an just to give you an idea of how influential this was for me, our sign off of every podcast is be fruitful and multiply. Yeah, <laughs> and right. and that, that that I learned from the, your work. So
1: well and you've got to expand your vision to this fourth chapter to, to really understand, you know, kind of who we are what we were made to do for example if you go to um the first chapter of genesis the creation story and you're in the sixth day of creation god is almost ready to wrap everything up he's created adam and eve he's put them in the garden he comes down to him and says let me tell you what your job description is let me tell you why you're here he says two things i'll put you here to do two, two things first i want you to fill the earth with my images the second thing i want you to do is to subdue the earth. Now, the word subdue there is literally the Hebrew word "kabosh," And as one uh, theologian says, that word in that context literally means to go make the earth an incredible place for human beings to flourish. Mm. So our job description, what we were created to do is to fill the earth with images and make the earth an incredible place for those images to flourish. Now, I would argue that's still our job description, still what we're called to do, particularly as Christians. We who've been redeemed stand in a place uh, that Adam and Eve did. We understand who God is. We understand what he's called us to do. And we have been empowered by the Holy Spirit working within us to do that. Yeah. So I often say that, that the gospel is a redemptive call back to a lost and forfeited calling to fill the earth with the
0: images and, and subdue it, and another so thing is as I mold as I've mulled over this stuff uh hugh i I feel like we get to do that from a place of freedom in the sense that yes. with Christ, now, when we go to do something, it's really from a place of freedom that that Christ has our back when we screw up and we will screw up, right. Yeah. Uh, the yep. sinful nature doesn't disappear, uh, nor does sin around us, and so we just have that freedom to not worry about it um, as much with the things that we that we do.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. And, and you know, once once you begin to understand this bigger story and how we fit into this kind of meta narrative, it begins to give really a, a more direction and more um, significance to your own personal story. And that's why I think it's very significant. So then you begin to overlay that fourth chapter gospel with understanding how God wants us to understand what he's called us to do, particularly in our vocational work. It becomes very compelling that the purpose of my work, right, what I'm supposed to do is to bring flourishing to the communities God's called me to serve. So whether I'm a you know, I was a Fortune 500 CEO or a stay-at-home mom. It doesn't really matter. God has given me something to do. He's given me a, a, a community to serve, and my job, through the work of my hands, is to bring flourishing to that community. Once you begin to see that, it puts everything in a new light.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. What would be the, the first book that you'd recommend somebody kind of trying to entertain these ideas? Uh, would it be your book there or, or would there be some other, the other ones to add? I know one that maybe we'll add to the show notes. That's not necessarily a part of if we, that I also thought was influential was God at work by Gene. Five. Yeah. Uh, be- yeah,
1: be- yeah be- yes. That's right.
0: Thank you. And um, no, so be- what, what other ones would you recommend for people that are exploring these types of ideas?
1: Well, in my little book, um, How Then Should We Work, You know, I I have a couple pages about this uh, fourth-chapter gospel. But as we began to look around, once we started the Institute, we could not find anything that had been written on the fourth-chapter gospel. So what we ended up doing was writing a small little booklet. It's called All Things New, and it's probably 20 pages long, something like it's fairly short. It's something you can sit down at one sitting and read through but it really goes into this idea of the fourth chapter gospel in, in quite some detail. And actually it's been probably the most popular, what well we've got probably 20 or 25 booklets, maybe 30 by now, but of all the booklets we've done, this is probably by far been the most popular. And I think we've sold or distributed something close to uh 40 or 50,000 of these. It's just really quite wow. amazing. Wow. Because I can say it's such an interesting idea it's such a, a compelling way to look at, you know, the entire um, redemptive history that's kind of laid out in the Bible uh, that it's, uh, it's just, it's been very, very popular. So that's if people are interested to find out more about this kind of idea of the fourth chapter gospel, that's where I would go um, and take a look at it. You can find it on our website, you can download it electronically, or, or you can actually purchase a little booklet uh, for two or $3. It's just fairly inexpensive, but yeah. um But like I said, this is an interesting idea that a lot of people have talked about. I've actually gone back and tried to find out kind of where did this idea originate. And I've actually got some, I've got a picture of Chuck Colson probably, you know, 20 years ago, uh, giving a lecture. And behind him on uh, on a slide is the fourth chapter gospel. So he's lecturing about the fourth chapter (laughs) gospel. So at least he talked about it 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've, I've found indications of other people even before that mentioning it. But it's not terribly popular. I mean, I had never heard of it before until I stumbled on it. But to me, it just was one of those really key pieces to help me begin to understand how to integrate my faith in my work uh, um, as I struggled through this. And as I've shared it with people, uh, like you, you're a perfect example. Others have told me over and over again, how uh, informative this has been and how how I'd really help them once again, understand how to plug their story into God's story.
0: Uh, Before we go to break, um, give us a little background. I mean, you gave background on your, your history with business. And we talked about it briefly, but um, what is your faith tradition that you've been practicing? And do you think this material cuts across denominations pretty easily? I don't have my uh, card carrying Catholic Levi here to, uh, to be the, uh, give his apologetics on Catholicism. So I guess uh, we got a freebie, but um, how do you think your message relates uh, across denominations and, and what is your faith tradition?
1: Yeah, and I, I, I'm personally uh, in the Presbyterian church and really kind of grew up in the Presbyterian church, but um, this particular idea, and really a lot of the stuff we do on the whole faith and work piece um, has a tremendous reach, across all denominations. I mean, we've done some studies to kind of look at the people that are buying our materials or, or, or you know, reading our blogs and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it stretches from, from, you know, from Catholics all the way to Catholics all the way to Charismatics and everybody in between. Because, you know, what we're trying to do is get back to the basics. What does the Bible say about our work and the importance of our work? What does yeah. the Bible say about God's redemptive plan, you know, for his creation? And I think these are things that resonate with people at a very basic level. So it really, kind of, it really kind of goes beyond denominations. And we don't get into a lot of the nitty-gritty stuff that I think uh, bogs people down as they get into arguments you know, back and forth about specific doctrine. The stuff that we're talking about is so fundamental, almost everybody agrees with it once they understand it.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, that, that sounds good. And I'd, uh, I would agree with that from all the various stuff that I've read that I think it does do that. And I think because of your overlap, hence your name, the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics, you really explore that overlap region. And I think a lot of pastors on Sunday and other people don't hit that very often, if at all. And that's what brings your makes your material unique, I think, and does cut across multiple denominations. So um, all right. Well, with that, uh, I think our second half here to give a little teaser, we're going to get into some contemporary issues and talk a little bit about your, about your new book and, and uh, people who are claiming to be democratic socialists. Uh, are they Christian or not? <laughs> That's a terrible teaser. But anyway, we'll do we'll explore something like that for fun. So we'll uh, see you in 30 seconds.
2: The Gourtney Institute's vision, by 2030, the Gourtney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economics understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to student experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. Please visit our website at 123povertysex.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysex or on Facebook at Courtney Institute for updates on our activities and research. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or recurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysex.org.
0: Okay, welcome back. Uh, We're talking with Hugh Welchel, and uh, thought I'd lead into some uh, socialist-type ideas. Uh, So I think the classic one to go back to is is Acts Two, and some people I would say wrongfully think that that means communism or socialism, some variety of that is being promoted. On previous podcasts, we've we've brought this up. uh, that, hey, these people were voluntarily getting together and sharing according to people who had need. Christianity was in its infancy and just starting to grow. And so people were feeling pretty uh, altruistic among their uh, small Christian tribe, if you will, of uh, trying to make things work. And so I think that has a lot to do with Acts, too. And the new twist that I'd like your comment on, Hugh, that I thought about was, If we actually think about the Roman Empire during that time, I think we're about, you know, just a few years after Christ's death or within that time period. The first martyr I ended up Googling up was uh, St. Stephen, about 30 years after Christ's death was the first martyr. My point is that persecution of Christians really didn't start even getting going for that first 30 years, which means they lived in a community where freedom, religious freedom was basically allowed. And so that freedom allowed the early Christian church to grow into what it's been today. They didn't stomp them out because it was against the law, let's say, or whatever. Um, I think the uh, Rome was pretty much under the idea that, Hey, as long as you guys aren't screwing up the way we want to do things, you can do what you want with whatever beliefs you have. And so the society there was actually ran under a great deal of religious freedom and therefore if anything i think that acts two shows the benefits of having uh the government take a stance of, of freedom as opposed to picking and choosing any thoughts on that hugh
1: yeah that, that's very true at that period of time the roman kind of stance on religion was very uh, pluralistic I mean they they let all sorts of different religions exist in fact early on those first 30 years or so the only real persecution that Christians got really from the Jewish communities that right. were kind of pushing back against against what they were doing and, and often in those first 30 years you know other people kind of saw Christianity as kind of a Jewish sect almost and of course the Jews didn't like that so they kind of pushed back on that but but really, you, um, that, that's what you saw. And I think if you look at that, that passage in Acts, uh, Art Lindsley, who's one of our theologians at the Institute, he's written quite a bit about that. And he says you have to be very careful, particularly when you look at some of this historical information that's laid down in the Scripture. Because he says often things that are descriptive are not prescriptive. Right. And just because they did that doesn't mean we're all supposed to go do that. Mm-hmm. And he talks about this was a special time, a special place, and even then they didn't sell everything. It wasn't a true commune, uh, or you know, like you think of, and a lot of people try to uh, try to make you believe that that's the case. So to say that the early church was was uh, they were all socialists, I think is quite a stretch.
0: Yeah, I agree, um, and so I think that's that's a good way to good way to summarize it that we might have observed some things that to me are actually very market oriented, Uh, the voluntary behavior, you know, not sharing everything, et cetera. And so I think there's a lot of times a lack of understanding of what we mean by free markets and free enterprise. And I think these uh, socialist ideas, the main thing is if government starts to get more larger and larger It's less freedom with your dollars because larger government means more government spending, which means more taxes. And so private choices start to get squeezed. And so I think we're not trying to get rid of government, of course. Uh, People wrongfully think that, that we're just going to make it a free-for-all. The market system is predicated upon uh, strong private property rights that we don't harm others. And if we do, there's a strong police system, which would be government uh, ran, uh, perhaps wouldn't have to be, by the way, Uh, there can be private policing systems as well, like security firms that we hire, but having some sort of police system, some sort of judicial system that you can get in front of an unbiased judge and have a a verdict laid down on on what is done. So there is a government involved in a good market system, good rules of the game. Just to put a little bit of a yeah, contemporary spin on what you were talking about with the early church being considered uh, socialistic or whatever. One of the things that Robert Nozick talks about in his book Anarchy, State, and Utopia is that if the, the federal government or the largest government is, has a lot of respect for freedom and freedom of association, And you can form a bunch of tiny little socialist or communalistic sects if you would like and see if those work. And if they don't, um, then the larger government can make sure that you're free to leave and that you can exit. The problem is when the actual large state government becomes socialist. Absolutely. So now you're back to people want – I think there needs to be a presidential campaign on this. And I've had students ask me if it should be me, but they don't know all the the skeletons in my closet. So (laughs) – it can't be me, but I think that's the whole argument for federalism, exactly what you just did. Let take away taxing power and, and, and presence of the federal government, push it down to the local levels. Let Seattle be Seattle. And as long as people can leave Seattle and run down to Houston, Texas, you know, that that's just going to work out. Let 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 things work out on their own. And I think that's exactly the federalist system. So, okay, um, Hugh, you've got a doctorate degree, I just learned, over the break. Tell us about that. Well,
1: I'm working, I'm working on it. <laughs> not done
0: That's true. I guess that was a little presumptive of me, yes.
1: I have, I'm in the process of starting to write my, my thesis, and I'm doing it on wealth creation. It's interesting that uh, it kind of fits into our discussion of, about socialism. I think one of the big concerns that I have in current culture today is that there's so many young people, particularly, and many, many of them are Christians, that are you know openly saying, we need to become a socialist. Mm-hmm. And they really don't know what they're saying, I, I don't think. But there's this odd resentment, almost, toward capitalism, or toward wealth creators. I think some of the things you see some of the presidential candidates saying really points to that. They, mm-hmm. They're kind of setting them up as the boogeyman and you know, it's, 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 it, we need to take their money and redistribute it and all these other things. And so I think there's a really kind of this misunderstanding about, about what wealth creation is and, and what it does. The interesting thing is I've done some of the research. I've interviewed uh, a number of wealthy Christians, and they had this odd belief almost as you begin to talk to them. And it's this idea that they almost feel guilty about all the money they've made. And I've even heard one say that, you know, they feel like kind of their repentance their is, is they have to give it all away before they die. And it's interesting because that strange kind of guilt is really reflected by the larger culture and, and, and Christian culture as well. There's this uh, interesting phenomenon out there we call the scarcity mentality. And it's this idea for me to get a bigger piece of pie, someone else has to get a smaller piece. So if that's true, anytime I accumulate wealth or I do well or or, or make money, it's, it's a sense I'm taking it from someone else.
0: Right. Zero-sum zero like zero mentality yeah, the zero is not kind of the word.
1: Kingdom, that's right. And, and that is so prevalent among people in our culture when the reality is just the exact opposite. Uh, free markets and capitalism, when it's done right, sometimes when it's done wrong, literally makes the pie bigger. Right, so I can get a bigger piece of pie, and there 's really more pie for everyone that 's what we want, but yep. the problem is very few people understand that, so, as I begin to study this idea of wealth creation that 's one of the big things i 've kind of stumbled across that 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 idea, which I thought you know most people were past that, but that 's just not the case
0: oh okay, so even the the rich people that you 're interviewing haven't escaped that mentality and maybe it's because they think they got lucky and and certainly with business there's there isn't of course an element of luck being in the right place at the right time so if we look at the the luck to merit spectrum um, and certainly somewhere in between not everything we do is all merit and not everything we do is all luck so but there is something in there
1: here's the other interesting thing when you talk about wealth creation everybody immediately jumps to millionaires and billionaires, right? Uh, right. And I'm, I'm basing my whole thesis really on one verse in Deuteronomy. If you go to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, you have Moses speaking to the second generation of um, Israelites. They're getting ready to take back the land, take back uh, Cana. And, and he, he tells them that they need to remember That it's the Lord their God that has given them the ability to create wealth so that God can confirm the covenant with them. Now that's an amazing statement. And I think it's a key verse to understand wealth and and money uh, throughout the rest of the Bible. But if you begin to think about it, you know, wealth creation is really just creating value through your work. And so he's saying that he's not just talking to the entrepreneurs in the crowd. He's not talking just to the business people. He's talking to everybody that everyone has been given the ability to create wealth. And if you really understand that verse, you really begin to understand that it's it's even broader than that, that God's created a universe that's full of principles. And once we understand these principles and we act according to these principles, that we all can create wealth, we all can create value. On top of that, he's made each one of us in a special way and given us um, things like comparative advantage and kind of this idea of what I call biblical self-interest that we operate out of our our self-interest. And he's made us that way so that we will be wealth creators.
0: Yeah, absolutely. uh, I guess I might add something I think I've said before the invisible hand Adam Smith talks about to me is God's hand. I mean, this whole market system was all divine and that's one of the pieces of the puzzle you're describing is that people's interactions through their own self-interest, which self-interest can include the interest of other people as part of your own self-interest creates income, creates wealth for all. And that was a divine concept.
1: That's right. That's right. That's exactly right.
0: And that this idea
1: that, that we're all wealth creators. Okay. I, I think I often go back to the parable of, of the talents. Uh, this is an incredible story that uh, most of the time, if you hear a sermon on this parable, you know, the whole sermon's about the guy with one talent. Well, the only thing you need to know about the guy with one talent is you don't want to be that guy. You want to be the other two guy. one of the other two guys, right? Well, people don't realize this is a story of massive wealth creation. A talent in today's dollars is worth at least a million dollars, maybe closer to two. So the guy that took five talents was given $5 million and went out in the marketplace and made $5 million more dollars. We don't know what the, the period of time was. Uh, some scholars guess that it might have been seven years. But even if you did that in today's market, that'd be pretty good, right? Mm-hmm. But to do it in their market in the first century, I mean, that guy was a Steve Jobs. or you know, I mean, he was just a superstar. <laughs> to be able to do that, right? Just, and he's, we're talking about creating massive wealth. Even the guy that takes two million and makes two million more does a pretty good job. But yeah. if the guy with one talent had been faithful and gone out and done what he should have done, he probably would have doubled his money as well. Point there is I think that there's a spectrum, right? That everybody's somewhere along that spectrum. Some people are gonna be really good at creating wealth. Some people are not gonna be so good, right? Right. But the point is we all are designed in such a way that we can create wealth, that we can bring value, right? We can create value for for others and, and for the community at large. And I think that's a different way of looking at wealth creation than we have looked at it in the past.
0: Yeah, and you even gave me just a new insight on something I've been talking about and certainly related to all this, that we're all wealth creators. I, I do the – the uh, trade game that I actually first did with you at one of those workshops where everybody gets a bag of candy and some goodies and uh, they trade and it's kind of like Halloween and and then people report their self-reported happiness. And inevitably every time uh, that I've ran this and I've ran it uh, multiple, multiple times with classes each semester and I've done it with uh, K through sixth grade and I've done it with my MBA students and, and so on and so on we end up getting increases in the room's happiness, right? Everybody reports. So it's really reflecting these win-win. And I think my new insight today that you've made me reflect on is, is that how did that come about? It's because that person who thinks they're maybe not a wealth creator actually is a wealth creator because by them pursuing their own love of Reese's peanut butter cups, and being, and being willing to seek out other people's things in their own interests, right? They make a trade. Not only do they make themselves better off, they made that other person better off. What did it take to do that? A relationship. A quick transactional okay. relationship, granted. But you had Good to time. work with another human being to create that value, to create that wealth. And uh, okay. I think that's an awesome uh, thing of uh, showing... The wealth creation, the value creation, and that's the word I usually do substitute as you did, that we get from a market system.
2: So, you have to figure out what will
0: make right. another person happier. Well, we didn't, yeah, that's right. But you just had to display it. So you didn't actually have to figure out whether they liked Reese's or who likes peanut butter. So we didn't have to be kind of the central planner. That's the other beauty of it. So you can trade with another individual. Yes. Right? Yeah. And so you you kind of show people, hey, this is the candy I have. Well, this is the candy. You know, we use like clear plastic bags or something. And then you can trade the candy. And so it's that person engaging you to say, hey, I'd be willing to trade two uh, Smarties for one Reese's or whatever and then it creates that dialogue it just creates that interaction that I think God really wants us to do and it's all through this invisible hand that's related to our own self-interest
1: and you go back to our anthropology he made us to thrive in relationships right we are relational beings God made us that way on purpose right yeah you know I tell people all the time you can't flourish by yourself and Bradley our economist often used as illustration about the movie mm-hmm. that Tom Hanks was in, where he was stranded yep. on a desert island, uh, yep. Castaway, I think it's called. That's
0: right. And that, I, I used that one, was, too.
1: In this beautiful desert island, right, he's got everything, food, water, beautiful place. Uh, I mean, it's where you and I would want to go for vacation. But what happens to him? He doesn't thrive. He, de- he doesn't flourish. Why? Because he's alone, right? And in fact, it gets to the point that he realizes he has to leave or he's going to die It's so bad. And I think that's a great illustration that, you know, we are not created to live on a desert island by ourselves. We're created to live in community because God has brought us together to work in community so that we can create together and do things together that we could not do on our own. This, it gets back to this idea of, of uh, subduing the earth, you know, make the earth an incredible place for human beings to flourish. We, we do that better more successfully when we do it with other people um, absolutely absolutely Very important. Is the eye the pencil story tell them that story that's a great story
0: yeah so with the eye pencil we um, nobody knows how to make a pencil right so if you ask some person to go make a pencil it would be almost impossible when you start to break it down to the wood the rubber the steel the metal the frame the paint yellow paint all the items is very global in today's environment, especially creating a pencil. And so um, we take these things for granted, but it was all very relational that that pencil sitting in our hand uh, ready to take notes. And it was through this complex array of resources and outputs and interactions, multiple thousands of things that went on to get the that simple little pencil let alone there's been other commentary I think maybe you guys have even participated in on, the, on an iPhone if we get into a complex thing. But Milton Friedman originally borrowed that I think maybe from another economist too, but explained a, the simplest thing of a pencil uh, is a miraculous combination of human effort in a variety of ways. So, yeah, so yeah that looks like a good spot to wrap here, Hugh. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you on and I was looking forward to this, Uh, for a long time. So great to hear your voice. Good to be with you guys. All right. So on behalf of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University, we want to thank you all for listening. Uh, If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us on your podcast, whatever favorite one and, and have it be a regular download that helps us rise in the ranks for this topic of faith and economics that we like to entertain from week to week. So if you could do that for us, that would be great. We also have a little donate button on our website. If you feel so inclined, that helps keep these initiatives going. And uh, we appreciate your uh, donations and just listening and help spread the word too. So other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.